So the reading's taken from Matthew 13, verses 1 to 23, which can be found on page 978. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered round him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered, because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still, other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has, has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth. Many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop, yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Do keep that passage open, as we refer to it all the way through. And you might find the outline uh, helpful, which is on the service sheet this morning. Well, the parable of the sower is perhaps the, well, one of the best known parables of Jesus. 
Sometimes people find trying to understand a parable is a bit of a challenge, but this one is the easiest because it's unique in the fact that Jesus tells us what it means. So it's quite straightforward. But on the way, it answers quite a number of questions which we may ask as people on the Christian journey. How does God change people? What is his method for doing so? What might I find, uh, why might I find sharing the gospel and uh, hard work at times and even discouraging? Why is it that some people seem to start off very well in the Christian life uh, but don't last? And how can we tell if we're a genuine believer? The main point though is that unless you understand the message, you are in danger of not believing in the real Jesus. If you've just picked up on one or two aspects of him, then you only have a partial picture. And a partial picture is not a true representation of the real thing. I wonder how many internet daters discover on first meeting that what they've seen is not what they meet. I've never tried it, so I don't know. <laughs> we had to communicate by handwritten letters or a telephone that you might have to kind of queue up for and put coins in. So it's a different world. I'm not familiar with it. But I do detect some photographs I've seen of people you don't actually look like that. But anyway, explaining the parable. There are two obstacles that we need to get uh, overcome in order to understand the parable. The first is our lack of knowledge, our ignorance, and the second is attitude. So let's deal with ignorance first. We do need a little bit of, uh, of um, agricultural knowledge from the first century Palestinian situation in order to kind of understand this. After all, if you do know anything about arable farming, you may be saying to yourself, wasn't it a bit daft throwing corn seed on pathways or onto rocks in the first place? Of course nothing's going to grow there. And you'd be right if you didn't know something about how the Palestinian farmer went about his work, which would make you realise it's all very sensible. You see, Jewish farmers of the first century hadn't, wouldn't have had rain for six months until early November. And when the rain came, they went out not to plough as we might do, but to sow. And what they did was to sow seed everywhere and then they'd come back and plough it in. They threw seed on the pathway because they knew they were only temporary. They had arisen only during the time of harvest a few months before. They'd soon be ploughing them over. And they sowed seed over rocky ground because actually they didn't know it was rocky. You see the sudden rains in November would have caused little flash floods and the topsoil from the higher part of the field may well have been washed to the lower part and given a light covering of soil over the limestone rock. So to the farmer, it all looks the same. Wet, fertile soil on the surface. 
And of course, at that time of year, they've got no idea where the weed seeds are. So they sow everywhere. It's only later that they find out where they are when they start to grow. So the sower sows the seed everywhere. To him, it all looks the same. He's no idea which part of the field is going to yield the highest. Only time will tell. Now, some seeds are sown on the pathway and they actually get eaten before he's had time to plough them in. He goes home, gets the oxen to plough the field and when, he's come, when he comes back, they've gone. Other seed that fell on the shallow topsoil over the rocky limestone didn't last long. It started, but it wasn't able to take root. It wasn't able to get enough moisture to sustain itself, so when the sun came out, it shriveled up, it wilted. Other seed had good soil, no rocks, but the wind has blown weed seeds there too, And in the favourable climate, the thorn bushes grew faster and overshadowed the corn seedlings as they started to sprout, shutting out the life-giving sun. And so they withered and died. But although the farmer had these disappointments, he had much more to be thankful for because some parts of the field would go on to yield 30, 60, or 100-fold. In other words, you plant one seed, you get 100 back. That's a very high return. And Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. We're meant to learn from the parable. The second issue is the one of attitude. If we don't have the right attitude, we won't get the right meaning. So what does it actually mean? Well, Jesus gives the explanation. Maybe it's because it's the first parable. That's why he chooses to give the explanation to this one. You see, unless you recognise who Jesus is in any parable, you'll never get it. You won't understand it. That's what Jesus means in verse 10. His disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. You see, we have to recognise in this parable that Jesus is the sower. Otherwise, it's just a story about first century Palestinian agricultural methods, which I'm sure are fascinating to two of you. Um, But the rest of us have got better things to do this morning. We have to recognise who Jesus is. And that requires a certain degree of humility. And if we have that... And we're open to the fact that God has come to earth to share his message and to carry out a rescue mission for us. We might well get it. 
that if we sit and approach it kind of loftily and ultra-critically and proudly, like the Pharisees, we might get some understanding, but we certainly won't want to commit our lives to this guy. And even if uh, we know a little, that will evaporate if we don't recognize who Jesus actually is. And he explains that he's the sower, that the seed is the word of God, his message, and the soils are the hearts of men and women. The heart, in Hebrew thought, is the seat of knowledge and decision-making. It really means the whole person, but it's really more our intellect and will than our ticker. And the heart can be open or closed, soft or hardened, sensitive or calloused, as Isaiah the prophet 700 years before had observed and who Jesus quotes here. The soils may seem all the same to the sower, but some parts of the field will will prove to be a disappointment, but much of what he sows will be incredibly fruitful. Let's first, before we look at it in detail, let's uh, register how the kingdom of God expands. It expands as the seed is sown, as the word or the message of God is spread. And it would seem from the New Testament that there are three stages in this. There is the sowing. Jesus came into this world incognito, came as a human being. And he sowed the seeds in the hearts of a few chosen individuals, his disciples. And then after his return to heaven, we have phase two, the period of growing as the church spreads from the few dozen to the multi-billion that it is today. Just to give you an example from one country, in 1980 I went with a bunch of friends in a Land Rover from the UK down France, uh, Spain, Morocco, into southern Algeria and drove up through the country. Algeria is the largest country in Africa, it's ten times the size of the UK. And in those days, there were apparently about 45,000 expatriate Christians, mostly French Roman Catholics, from the colonial period. The number of Algerian Christians at that time was numbered in the high hundreds. In 2016, research suggested that the number of Algerian Christians was now around 380,000 who were converts from Islam. And the church will continue to grow worldwide as more and more people embrace the word, which is the message not only of Jesus, but it connects us to Jesus. Until the final phase, which is, verse, uh, which is phase three, and it's inaugurated with the return of Jesus Christ. That's when we will have the reaping. Harvest time will have arrived. There will be a sort out between the weeds and the wheat. It will take place and God's eternal kingdom will be established forever. And we in this life are to make sure that we uh, take up the invitation to enjoy it. Not everybody will. Even though some, he's saying, will seem to have done so. 
but it will turn out that they haven't. They are represented by the different soils. The first soil is the path. Before the farmer has any chance to go home and get the plough, the birds come and take the seed. This kind of the person is the kind of in one ear, out the other. We all have practiced that, don't we, from time to time. There's a certain kind of, kind of person who you think, oh, and they tell you something and you think, there's nothing I can do about that. And I open one ear and open the other and forget about it. I confess. But you do it as well, I'm sure. Verse 14, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. Perhaps they come to church occasionally or possibly at Christmas or they'll engage in a discussion with you at work or when you're socialising. But then they will soon not want to pursue any interest further. They'll begin to hear a bit of the gospel, but not enough. And the little they do take in is soon snatched away, leaving them with a a distorted, half-truth version of Christianity rather than the real thing. Yes, they say, I believe in God, but I'm not a sinner. I'm as good as anyone who goes to church, and they may well be. I pray to God, and I give to Oxfam. Or as a visitor said to me one, uh, one Christmas after a service, he said, I liked everything except the bit about the judgment of God. I think he was only referring to a collect, a special prayer for Advent, which I'd read, and which all churches read at that time of the year, where it says that on the last day, when he, that's Jesus, shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal. He said, well, you didn't like that, and we shouldn't have that at Christmas, or when the children are present. And I thought it was pretty clear, that collect. Yes, there is a coming of Christ where he will be the judge because we expect of God that he is a God of justice and that he would hold everybody to account for all that they've done in this life, even what they managed to get away with and never face justice. But there already has been a coming of Christ where out of his great love for us, he came to save us. And without his coming, we would all be lost. In both events, you have the character of God, his mercy and his justice perfectly balanced and for our benefit so we can be reconciled to him. It's only when the message of Jesus is ploughed so deep into our being that a radical turnabout in life takes place involving the confession of our sins, that we recognise we've done wrong to him, and we put our trust in him that he is in a position to be able to forgive us our sins and grant us eternal life. Well, next, the stony ground. There's a problem here of superficiality, of easy believism. We think someone's converted, well, in reality, they are not. Often it's those who make the most noise, who seem the most zealous, and yet today... They are nowhere as far as Christianity is concerned. Those on the rocky places, Jesus says, um, 
is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. Each year we have a baptism and confirmation service and we take a little photo opportunity of the candidates with the bishop just round the corner in the atrium. There's usually anything between a dozen and 20 people, adults and older teenagers, who profess their faith publicly. I was having one of those rare experiences in my life when I do some tidying up. And um, in many ways, um, the photograph was typical. But in another, fortunately, it wasn't. Two of the number had moved away from Basingstoke for work, and one had changed church. But in all those cases, and they were all men, sexual temptation in its different forms had got all three of them. It's as the, the writer Luke puts it in his account of uh, the parable of the sower. Believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. Had they not taken on board the cross? Had it been just remorse and regret rather than repentance? Was it worldly sorrow, as Paul calls it in Corinthians, rather than godly sorrow? Had there been no realisation that before Almighty God that they were guilty of their rebellion against him? Hadn't the evidence for the resurrection convinced them that it was true? Had they not been aware of the call to a holy life? They are all features of all the sermons in the Acts of the Apostles. Well, we move on. For the first group of people, the devil has blinded their eyes. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit to open up our eyes so that we are enlightened, so that we're no longer in the dark about life, so that we can be stirred from our superficiality. For the second soil, the short, sharp shock of the world soon reveals their early enthusiasm for what it was, throth. But the third group are much more difficult to distinguish. It takes a long time before it's realised that this group may not be genuine. Not that we're to judge, but we are to judge ourselves to make sure that we are the right soil. So the thorny ground, verse 22. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. Maybe we have to wait until middle age before we discover that worries and prosperity have shown us up for what we really are. As another translation captures it, they hear the message, but the worries of this life and the love of riches choke the message so they don't bear fruit. The worries of this life. How many people change their moral views, which they've learnt from Scripture, which God has revealed to us because it's the best way for us to live, 
but they change their view. They disagree with God, either because it's a personal struggle or because they have a very close friend or relative who's opted for an aspect of the fallen life and they can't bring themselves, if asked, to reply to their dear friend that what they're doing is not only wrong and will do them no good and others no good. But if it's not the worries, then maybe it is the wealth or particularly the love of riches that may derail us. I heard the former chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, say once on Radio 4 Thought for the Day that Judaism has always been stronger in times of persecution. In times of prosperity, Jews, he said, tended to accommodate to the ways of the world. And isn't what is true of Judaism also true of Christianity? Some people give up under persecution, but others are stubborn and stick it out. But prosperity is altogether more subtle. It's a less obvious attack. It subverts. You don't see it coming, but one day you wake up and find yourself indistinguishable from the world around you. Like the thorns, it chokes the life out of you and it reveals that you're spiritually dead. Now let's see what's required for such a soil to bear fruit or for a professor of faith to turn out to be genuine. And this is where the comparison of the three accounts of Jesus' parable from Matthew, Mark and Luke um, blended together give us a, a full picture. So from Luke 8 we read that an honest and good heart is required. If you seek God with that attitude, I've no doubt you'll find him open, willing to learn, but if you set yourself up as detached and aloof, you won't. Or Mark 4, they need to hear the message. Personal example is all very necessary, but it is not enough. Jesus says people need to hear the Christian message. Now we say actions speak louder than words, and in fact I'm sure that the truth for most of us is that we were drawn to the Christian faith by the example of someone who was a Christian. They had a ring of truth and authenticity about them which was just attractive and wholesome. But for Jesus, words are more important than actions because words explain why somebody lives and behaves differently. And from Matthew, we see that they need to understand it. They need to understand the real Jesus. And then in Mark, having heard and understood, they need to accept it. Accepting Christ means that he is the new controller of our lives. And then finally in Luke, we are to hold it fast, whether in the face of persecution or prosperity. We hang on in there with him. We stick with Jesus. We hold to the right priorities. And that is the secret of a fruitful life. Well, having understood it, we now need to apply it. Many of us wonder how to reach the world. 
Do we need better publicity, better PR? Maybe we need a better social action programme. Some might want to create beautiful liturgy. But no, according to Jesus, words are the most important thing. The message, that's what changes people. As they encounter Jesus through the Gospels, they encounter God through the rest of Scripture. They think like he thinks, they behave like he behaves, and they've got it. It's quite amazing, but words are Jesus' primary weapon, and they should be ours too. We need to have confidence in our scattering of the seed. Next, there's a warning. As we went through the parable, were you able to identify which soil you were? Which was it? Now, I'm not going to get you to kind of um, put your hands up in response to me going through which soils, but I would like you to ask yourself, which soil am I? Has your response been rather indifferent in the past? And the message this morning has rather surprised you. It's pulled you up short. Or are you the second soil? Once you made an enthusiastic commitment, but the whole thing has evaporated. No substance, no root. Someone said to me after this first service that that's exactly what they were. And they lived in the kind of wilderness, as they put it for probably 20 years. But they came back to the Lord. He brought them back. They changed soil. Or did you get off to a good start, full of vitality, but you've grown a bit tired? That the life's been choked out of you? Well, the good news is that what you can't do agriculturally, you can do theologically. You can change your soil and start again and this time properly. It is the only safe course of action to do, Jesus told his disciples and those following him. Why? Because he believed it was easy to misunderstand, to make a false profession. Maybe we didn't fully realise what was involved in following Jesus. Maybe we deceived ourselves, and that is easier to do than we can imagine. It's good to take stock and to make sure we really are believers, that we are the good soil. And how do we know? Well, we are then fruitful. There is a character change. So let's look finally at this good soil, the soil that bears fruit. This is where the encouragement is. For the farmer, he's seen his setbacks, he's seen the birds come and take the seed, he's seen the seed shrivel up under the sun, he's seen the seed start to grow but then had the life choked out of it. It's been nothing but bad news, but then the harvest comes and he can be really pleased because there it is, one fruitful field after another. It is for him fantastic. All the work has been worth it. All the disappointments, all the setbacks, and now success at last. Now, if you realise you're the wrong soil, you're not doomed. You can change. If you were too shallow, then you require more understanding. If you were too exuberant in your initial response, if you were into Jesus a bit, but not substantially, 
well, then you need deeper roots. Or if over time you've allowed things of this world to dominate you, your thinking, well, you need a paradigm shift to allow Jesus to be the centre of your thinking and the controlling and directing power in your life. But if you are the fruitful soil, the only question left is how fruitful? 30, 60, 100 fold. If you are a Christian, you're meant to be fruitful. It is an automatic consequence of having, if you like, the, the spirit of Christ living within us. We adopt his character and that gets expressed in our behaviour. So to be fruitful is about Christian character, manifesting the fruits of the Spirit, but it's also about Christian reproduction too. I wonder if you can see a hint of this, that what might be expected of a, of a Christian over a lifetime, 30 new Christians, 60 new Christians, 100 new Christians over a course of a lifetime, that's only one or two a year, but what an objective to have. As a church and as Christians, we are in the business of growing. Jesus has said that there will be growth, it is guaranteed, and historically we have seen that that is correct, astonishingly correct. It's not necessarily been easy, but let us invest our lives in this enterprise. It will turn out to be fruitful for us, for others, and for the growth of the kingdom of God. And when we get to heaven, we may be sad that some we expected to be there may not be there. But we may be astonished to discover people who we said just a couple of sentences to, which triggered them off thinking and unbeknown to us, went down the route where they embraced Christ as their Lord and Saviour. And they're there, and they thank us. That's an investment really worth making. Amen.